and welcome back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valen Likely and Catherine Lotspeech. Listeners, welcome to 2021. It is the first week of January, and we are sincerely hoping, wishing, praying, doing rain dances, whatever it takes to <laughs> to, to make this year um, better than 2020. And with that in mind, um, we have a very special guest today I'll let Valene introduce, but we're going to be talking about uh, sort of the odd year that 2020 had, or that agriculture had in 2020, um, in terms of payments and margins and finances, um, and what 2021 looks like. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. We started 2020, I think, with a bang, and then all of a sudden COVID had hit, and dairies were dumping milk and so forth, and people were plowing under potatoes and onions, and it was weird, and then all of a sudden record prices and, and everything, and so this week we brought on um, Rick Narabout. He's the CEO of the Idaho Dairy Association. And I've had the pleasure of sharing office space with him um, this year and um, wanted to kind of pick his brain on agriculture's markets, where he thinks they're going, but specifically in the dairy industry, because I think there's a lot happening. Um, But before we dive in, I'll let Rick kind of introduce himself and his role at the Idaho Dairy Association. Well, thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to join you both today. Um, appreciate being able to speak with you and your listeners. Um, so, Rick Narabout, I, I head up the Idaho Dairymen's Association. We're the producer association in the state of Idaho representing dairymen on policy and sustainability and, and other issues uh, related to on-farm practices. And, and grew up in the industry. Uh, my family, we used to dairy in Michigan about 20 years ago. We had our own family dairy uh, that we sold in the late 90s uh, before we moved west and started working uh, for producers in Idaho. Well, we're happy to have you in Idaho and representing the dairy industry. Um, so I guess let's just dive into um, with the volatility in the agriculture markets um, that COVID presented, we saw a lot of, you know, subsidies being, I don't know if subsidies is even the right word, but um, a lot of dollars being thrown around from the federal government and agriculture was fortunate to get some of those um, fundings. What kind of payments did agriculture get and specifically the dairy industry? Yeah, so so you're right. There was a lot of different plans and different things that both uh, the, the Trump administration as well as Congress put forward to try and stave off economic losses and keep, uh, you know, keep the economy as healthy as possible as we work through the pandemic. And in and, and the dairy industry, we, we extre- experienced extreme volatility. Um, you know, like you said, we started off the year good. It looked like 2020 was going to be, you know, above break even for milk price and things looked like, you know, they were going to be a pretty good year and things are going to shape up okay. And then March hit and we went from okay milk pricing to nearly setting a record low price, and we were we were looking at losses that would rival what we experienced in 2009 and 2010 during that economic downturn, and and we went from that standpoint in late March and April to by July we were setting a record cheese price on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and so really extreme volatility and, and, and a whole bunch of unknowns. And, and part of that was due to the government and the intervention programs that they put in place. They were very successful in terms of how they were able to positively impact the dairy industry, but also the general population as well. 
So, so the different programs that our dairymen were able to take advantage of first was the payroll protection program. Uh, for the first time since I can remember, uh, the, the agricultural community was able to participate in an SBA program. Typically the small business administration, uh, ag entities are exempt from being able to use that or prohibited from using that. And this time Congress, when they looked at it, they said, now let's let agriculture participate in this. And so that was the first opportunity our dairymen had to be able to, to obtain grants and, and low interest loans uh, to be able to make sure that they could weather the storm. And so we had a number of dairy producers apply for those PPP loans uh, based on their payroll and utility and rent and some other needs, just to be able to put that floor underneath some of their operating costs and be able to, to know that with assurances that they were gonna be able to weather at least part of the storm. And so that was the first thing that we had that, that helped the producers out. And then uh, shortly after that, and really the thing that had the biggest impact for our dairy producers was the food box program. And, and this was a win-win program. Uh, we were buying U.S. commodities, you know, dairy, dairy uh, benefited as did a number of other commodities. And so you're helping to put demand back into those markets that lost demand. And then you're taking those, those food products and putting them into the mouths of individuals that typically don't find themselves at a food bank looking for food, but given the economic crisis and the losses of jobs that many people experienced around the country, you had a whole lot of people that were finding themselves in line to, to receive uh, donations from food banks that typically weren't there. And so that program really was a win-win program. We helped to, to support demand for, for ag commodities and also helped feed hungry people in the country. And so really probably the, the best program that, that came into place during the pandemic, I would argue, is that food box program. And then on top of that, uh, we, we also did have direct payments in the CFAP uh, program. Um, and so th the, way, the way Congress uh, had this structured this time, well, I guess it wasn't Congress, it was the administration with help from, from congressmen. And, and we specifically had a lot of help from uh, Senator Rich in Idaho we wanted to make sure, because typically when you have USDA offer support to ag producers, they, they cap it out at a very low level. And in the West, and in particular in Idaho, our average dairy and our average farm size is much bigger than the average farm size in the country. So our dairy producers and our ag producers in general typically were disadvantaged when USDA offers support to, to ag producers. This time around, uh, the administration looked at it and said, no, we're not gonna use our traditional cap of $125,000. We're gonna put a cap structure in place that uh, goes up to $250,000 per partner and will allow up to three partners that can show that they, uh, they are part of the, the, the agricultural business up to 400 hours during the year. They can qualify as a partner and, and be able to cap out at $250,000 if the production in the, in the farm was great enough to get there. And so a much different cap structure than what we typically saw in, in previous programs from USDA. And so we did have uh, two rounds of that CFAP program. And so very robust support from USDA uh, and very, very unique. We've never seen in the dairy industry in Idaho as much support from USDA this go around than we did in previous years or previous uh, iterations of, of direct payment support. Do you think that that was due to, you know, the very um, 
visible damage of of milk dumping and there were news reports about it and everything and so it was you know highly visible and therefore a pretty popular move or i mean why was dairy um you know supported more this time around than in previous iterations do you think i think it was bigger than that because the cap structure was in place for all ag producers it wasn't just a cap structure unique to the dairy industry so so all all commodities had the same cap structure I think it was honestly a lot of work from individuals like Senator Risch and the other Idaho delegation members and, and the delegation members of surrounding states. You know, th this, wasn't, this wasn't a partisan issue. This was bipartisan in that we had congressional delegation members recognize that the average farm in the West is much bigger than the average farm in the country. And their constituents are often disadvantaged when it comes to support from USDA. And so you had a lot of voices into the Trump administration saying, hey, you need to think about how uh, you typically have these cap structures in place for USDA support and really encourage the, the Trump administration and Sonny Perdue to consider a different approach. So I, I think it was a, a good team effort. You know, our Idaho delegation, you know, they, they, they do a great job representing Idaho Ag and they were definitely in the mix, you know, you know being able to represent us, but they also had good support from surrounding states as well. So with all this, you know, we've talked about the addition of all this funding, where, where did dairy end up at the end of the year? You know, what did a typical dairy's bottom line look like, you know, with the lowest lows and the highest highs, did it balance out or did we still end up kind of at a record high? Uh, when when you add it all together, I, I don't know that we're going to beat the 2014 records that we set with the because we experienced all time milk price highs in 2014 and they were sustained highs. Uh, this year, you know, we, we didn't have sustained highs. We had near record lows and near record highs. And so there was a lot of uh, volatility there. Um, overall, it's going to be a good year for Idaho dairy producers. And, and part of that is we benefited more from the, the CFAP program and the bounce in price from, or not from CFAP, but from uh, from the food box program and the bounce in price because the majority of the bounce in price was in cheese. And the majority of Idaho's milk goes into cheese production. And our producers are paid based off of a, a cheese price for milk. And so we saw more benefit in that bounce in cheese price than the typical producers across the country. And, and so, so we, in, in Idaho dairy, we had a very good year. There, there's no no shine away from that. We we had a very good year. It, it honestly feels a little bit awkward because, you know, when we were advocating for the support we got from USDA, it was when we were looking at things. And if you would have asked me about setting records, I would have said, yeah, absolutely, we're going to set records. Our dairymen are going to lose a rec record amount of money, and we're going to lose a record number of dairy farms this year just because things look that bad. That's when we were advocating hard for this support program. And then the market responded so rapidly that all the wheels had already moved and things had fallen into place to where the USDA announced the support for, for dairy producers. And, and, and so it was, you know, it was coming at a time where arguably, you know, it wasn't as needed as it was previous, but we're talking about USDA and, and there's dairy farmers and, and my counterparts in other parts of the country would, would see the world very differently. You know, it's a nationwide program, it's not regional. 
And there were dairies in other parts of the country that were really struggling because they didn't see that same bounce in their milk price like we did in Idaho because they don't have as much cheese production in their parts of the world. So, you know, it, it just, the way it hit Idaho really was very beneficial for, for our dairy producers, probably more than the average in, in the rest of the country. That's interesting and it's cool. Like as I start, I grew up in beef and as I start getting more and more involved in the dairy, you know, the, the different products that come out, you know, you talked about powder and cheese and, and fluid milk. And I'm sure there's another entity too that I can't even touch on, but how, how different across the country it really can be. How, my next question is, how does this affect the overall stability of like the dairy industry with all this volatility and some government help? Is the market stable or are we gonna expect to see more volatility in 2021? Uh, I, I would say expect to see more volatility and, and we've seen it in a good way so far this week. So. USDA announced a fifth round of the food box program earlier this week. And the response we saw in dairy markets the next morning was limit up moves in January through, through June or July, I believe. And so we already saw that volatility for, from a dairy producer standpoint, it, the volatility was moving in the right direction. Um, you know, as, as that food box program, as those purchases happen, as things come more into light as to how much you know cheese they're going to buy and, and other dairy products they're going to buy to put in those food boxes, you know you could see the volatility go the other way if if it's not meeting market expectations and USDA is not buying as much dairy products as the market expects them to, you could see the bottom fall out just as quickly as we had a limit up move. We could have a limit down move, and and that's that's the piece that I don't think the average consumer really appreciates about whether it's dairy or beef or other commodities, our ag producers absorb a tremendous amount of risk so that the consumers can have a steady price. They don't, they don't see these market moves. They don't see that their price of milk in the grocery store when, when there's up, ups and downs in the market, it really doesn't change. You know, you're pay, basically paying the same price for milk. You know, maybe it moves 10 cents a gallon one way or the other, but there's no big moves in the price of milk in the store. And, and it's the ag producers that really absorb those gains and losses. And so this year, or 2020, we had, we had a good year. We had gains and dairymen were able to build equity. But the reality is dairymen understand they've got to build that equity so that when we have another downturn, they've got that equity to lean on to be able to borrow against so that they can keep their operations going. And, and that's kind of the ebbs and flows in agriculture is, is you've got to have the good years so you can weather through the storms of the bad years. I think that's a good reminder for whoever's listening, whether it's agriculture producers um, or, or consumers, because a lot of other industries seem to be maybe a little more flat or, or slowly projecting up, whether it's tax or um, other markets out there. But agriculture, we have to learn to, to ride those volatility waves um, that come and go all the time. What how, how do we ride those volatility? Is it safe? Is it continue to expand where we can so that we can disperse? Is it diversify? What, what do you recommend to the Idaho producers to do when they have a little extra cash in the bank right now? You know, a lot of that varies just based on the individual producer and, and every producer has, has a different approach to it. 
Um, you know, and that's not all that different from other ag commodities. Our, our ag producers, especially in the state of Idaho, they seem to have a real independent streak to them and, and they all have a different way of managing their business. I, I know dairymen that are old school and they don't hedge, they just take the cash price and, and they feel like they've been better off over the long period of time of just taking the cash price and they get the highs and the lows, but they've built up enough equity to be able to weather that storm and that's where they're comfortable. Other dairymen are very active in hedging and they're, they're using you know, either brokerages or hedging directly through whoever they sell their milk to, but they're very active in hedging their price to make sure that they take out those highs and lows, but they're hedging a price that they know they can make money at. And you've got other dairymen that they've looked at it and their answer has been to vertically integrate and to build their own processing facilities themselves. And that's been their way of helping to manage risk is to, to actually own that next layer of the supply chain and, and convert their own milk to a finished product. And so part of it is just what is the risk appetite of that dairy producer and what are they most comfortable with and, and executing whatever strategy makes them you know, the most comfortable and, and makes the most sense to them. Does size matter when making that decision? Oh, w- without a doubt. You, 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 you can vertically integrate if you're a small producer, if you want to chase a niche market. And I'm thinking of guys like Alan Reed and Reed's Dairy or Stephen Stacy Ballard and Ballard Cheese. They've carved out, you know, really good niche markets for themselves. Bill Stoltzfus and Cloverleaf Creamery is another one. You know, they're smaller producers, but they've been able to carve out that niche market and, and be able to, to produce for that. Um, you know, so, so you have that opportunity as a small producer, we don't have a very large population base. So it's not like you could have too many of those small producers producing a finished product like that before you'd flood the market. If you're going to look at your own processing of, of any amount of size, size absolutely matters to be able to have the equity and the capital to build these facilities. You know, you're, you're not talking tens of millions of dollars. You're typically talking a price tag of over $100 million to build a, a, a cheese plant or a milk protein plant. And so those are very sizable investments and, and you've got to have a lot of capital to get that done. So size absolutely matters. Even if you're hedging milk size matters, just because your, your contract size, if you're going to go to a brokerage firm and hedge on the CME, the, the size of a CME contract is 200,000 pounds of milk. And, and so you've got to look at that and say, okay, does that make sense for me to go through a brokerage with that big of a contract? Or should I just hedge through my creamery or find a different way of, of, of doing it? Because going through a brokerage on the CME, it's just that 200,000 pounds could represent a very sizable portion of their, month, their month's milk supply. And, and then it just doesn't make much sense to, to hedge big chunks all at one time. Yeah, no, I think and that's every producer is individual too on, on size and, and preference and, and what, where they're supplying to as well. Kind of switching gears, um, we've touched on it a bit, but what do you anticipate 2021 looking like for agriculture in general and then for the dairy industry? Oof, that's... or should we even start that conversation Uh, i i I think there's going to be volatility for for a lot of agriculture you know i I, i'm optimistic when it comes to agriculture i i think i think we're in a decent place 
you know, if we can get the, the general population vaccinated for COVID and start to get back to a sense of normalcy come spring and summer, that'll make all the difference in the world to, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think even the average farmer realized how much of what they produced was sold through a restaurant until we had COVID hit. And then you start to recognize, you know, we, we, we had half the cheese and 60% of the butter in this country sold through a restaurant prior to COVID. That, that's a huge percentage. You look at other ag producers, uh, the, the lamb industry, the amount of lamb sold through restaurants is an even greater percentage for them. And so you start to look around and, you know, there, there's still going to be some struggles this year, but if we can get ourselves back to normal as a country and get people back to work, get restaurants back opened up and, and help the demand side of the equation, that that's going to be a big piece to the success of agriculture and dairy, dairy in general. You know, for, for me, I'm optimistic, you know, the first half of this year looks really good right now, especially based on what's on the on the futures board and USDA's announcement earlier this week. The, the first half of the year looks really good. Um, but we all know in agriculture, if you have a good year or even a good 18 months, like it looks like we're going to have over the last 18 months, we're going to make money that incentivizes more milk production. And we've seen that in 2020, we're, we're up almost four percent year over year in 2020 over 2019. So we're already seeing that production show up and those increases come. And so, so that's going to be a big factor in all of this is with healthy milk price, how much milk production do we incentivize and, and how much growth do we see, not just in Idaho, but nationwide? And, and are we able to sell everything we're making or do we start to inventory dairy products? Do you think if we, um, you know, continue to make more milk, will, will that continue the trend of consolidation in the dairy industry or more dairy is going to be able to hang on through 2021 if we, you know, have better milk prices, um, maybe more farm payments, who knows? What, what are your thoughts on that? I, I don't think at this point the economics are the biggest driver in the consolidation of the industry. To, to a big, I mean, big picture, yes, but say we had $20 milk for the next two years, you're still going to see a rapid consolidation of the dairy industry, and a lot, a lot of it is generational. You've got the next generation, had, I mean, you look at the three of us, you know, we, we all grew up in, in agriculture and none of the three of us are back on our family farms right now. Um, you know, th there's, there's easier ways to make a living than milking a couple hundred cows on a small dairy farm in a rural community in Idaho. And so you've got a lot of those smaller operations that the next generation is not there to take it over. And, and you've got interest from bigger dairies to, to buy those smaller dairies because we don't have the ability to ship any more milk to our processors. Everybody's put in a base program. You've got this interest from these big dairies to buy out the small dairies, not to run those dairies, but to, to shut them down and move that base, you know, purchase that base production off that dairy and move it to their to their larger dairy so they can produce more milk on that larger dairy. And so that's what we're seeing is the consolidation is really being driven by the fact that our bigger dairies can't go build a new facility and be able to sell the milk into the, the markets they're used to. They've got to buy base from smaller facilities and start to piece these things together to be able to have the ability to ship more milk. And, and agriculture is no different than any other business. If you stop growing, 
that's the point where you start to fall behind your competition and, and it's a competitive business. And so dairy producers have to be able to continue to grow if they don't want to fall behind their competition. That's a whole nother topic that we could dive into for a whole nother episode. I love it. <laughs> um, I really, I really appreciate that, uh, that straight on analysis of, of the industry, because that's, you know, it might be a little bit of hard truth to hear for some people, but that's certainly, um, you know, certainly the, the um, long and short of it, I think. So do you have any recommendations for producers for planning or budgeting um, after a year like 2020? Um, or is it just try and ride the wave, ride the volatility? You know, I, I would highly encourage dairy producers right now to look at hedging the good prices that are out there. We don't know how long they're going to hold on, but definitely start to have conversations with whoever they trust, whether they're, whether they're hedging through a brokerage or they're hedging through an insurance company that's doing DMC, but have those conversations because th there, there are some really good prices out there that can be hedged and don't let them slip through the cracks, but be diligent about it. Make sure that you're making smart decisions and that you understand what your basis risk is as well. Because if you don't understand your basis risk, you could hedge what you think is a good price and find out when you do get your milk check that because you didn't calculate your basis correctly, you, you didn't hedge anything and you actually, you know, locked in a loss potentially. So go into it eyes wide open, but definitely when we're in market conditions like we are now, or you've got a bump in the market, have those conversations about hedging. I think that have, yeah, just looking, looking ahead and knowing that the good times are good, but they're not going to last, I think is a great reminder for everybody because we like to spend or we like to expand or we like to have the new fancy toy. Um, but sometimes it's, we don't, we're not going to have the cash in the bank or it's good. We're going to need to hold on for the end of 2021. I hope not, but we want to make sure that we, we do plan. Um, what do you see any expansion? Are we completely saturated? We're, we're, we're done with, you know, growth and we're just looking at consolidating or becoming innovative at this point? No, I, I think you'll still see expansion. I mean, even we've been oversupplied in our market for the last four or five years and we've continued to expand all of those years. There, there's not been a, a reduction in milk supply or even, even a flat year over year. We've had growth year over year for the past four or five years. I think the last time we saw a negative growth rate in Idaho milk production was 2013. Um, you know, so, so we're going to see growth. Um, you know, where we stick that milk is, is going to be challenging. I, I expect that come spring flush in, in Idaho, when we get into the, the real heart of our flush, which is in July, I expect we'll probably hear about milk being dumped just because there's not enough trucks to move it to the next closest processing facility. Uh, out of state. And so, you know, that, that's a real possibility that, you know, as we get into the flush season, we'll, we'll see milk hit the ground. But, you know, if there's, if there's one thing that Idaho dairymen and, and dairymen in general are good at, and, and ag producers in general are good at, it's being efficient with production and being able to grow production through innovation. You know, for dairy, that's going to come through genetics largely, uh, even if we're not adding cows to the herd, 
the, the heifers that are coming in and those springers that are calving today are genetically superior to their, to their counterparts that, that calved, you know, a year or two earlier to them. We're continuing to increase milk per cow and become more efficient at converting feed to milk. And, and that's just, that's just the reality of our business. And, and so we're going to continue to see that growth rate. Hopefully sometime during this year, we'll be able to have new processing come into the state. That's something we work on quite regularly is trying to, trying to go out there and find more processing to come into the state. It's, you know, Chobani was the last non-producer owned processor to come, um, you know, in that same realm. I mean, they were built a little bit earlier, but you had high desert milk and Idaho milk products. Both of those are producer owned vertically integrated uh, processing facilities. And, and the amount of milk that those two facilities process is leaps and bounds greater than what Chobani processes. And, and High Desert's going through an expansion right now. So I look to the producer community as being more viable in terms of being able to answer that question of, can we find more processing? I, I see producers looking at the ability to vertically integrate and exploring that being more viable than trying to find an existing processor that wants to come into the state and build you know, a new facility here. It just seems based on the track record of the last decade or maybe even 15 years that that's, that's a more viable option to add processing capacity in this state. Are, so when, when you do increase processing or production, are we, is that, is that going to domestic consumption or are we looking at overseas shipment for some of those products as well? The, the bulk of it so far has been domestic, but um, the, there is discussion. Dairy Gold is looking at an ingredient plant. They, they haven't announced where they're going to build it, but the short list of states is either Washington or Idaho. And, and if Dairy Gold chose to, to build their facility in Idaho, that's an ingredient plant. That's going to have an export focus. Dairy Gold is a very export focused company. They export a lot of their milk proteins and, and their dried products. And so it just depends on, on what the product mix is going to be and, and what they make and, and where their market focus is. This is such a great conversation. I think we could go all night long with it and, you know, picking your brain and figuring out what you, what you <laughs> think and where you see the industry going for the next year. Um, maybe we'll be able to have you back and continue to do that. But um, in the interest of, of your time, we'll, we'll start to wrap up the episode here. Rick, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, happy to join and happy to join in the future if it makes sense for me to come back sometime. Absolutely. Perfect. Well, thank you listeners for tuning into this week's episode of the Millennial Ag Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also email us at talktous at millennialag.com. Until next week, we are Millennial Ag. Mm-hmm.